Hi, everyone. Welcome to the August 26th, to the August 27th, 2021 uh, episode of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. As long as we can read a calendar, we're going to be okay, folks. Don't worry. We've got a great panel. Uh, both Douglas County and Adams County commissioners have voted to opt out of the Tri-County Health Department's mask mandates for children in schools aged 2 to 11. However, Douglas County commissioners plan to take it one step further by seeking to overturn Tri-County's mandate by questioning the way the mandate was passed earlier this month. Meanwhile, schools in Douglas and Jefferson County reported COVID outbreaks this week, and the state health director hinted at stricter measures on the horizon. Penfield Tate, longtime state lawmaker and attorney with Tate Law, thank you for joining us with our friend Ms. Calhoun out of town. You get the first seat. Penn, um, this feels uh, a little bit... Uh, so not only do Douglas County commissioners not like the rule, but instead of seeing that, okay, well, we can't overturn that rule, we'll just go to see how it was passed, because at the heart of it, Douglas County schools are fine with the mask mandate, which seems to be the bigger issue. Uh, when you look at all the different things going on with schools and mandates and counties and different health departments, what stands out to you as the important things to consider? I think what stands out is that as a society, we've missed the point. We've got everybody playing politics with the health of kids, and the reality is COVID kills, and, and we should understand that by now. So whether it's Missouri or Texas, where you have governors and AGs suing school districts, you know, who have imposed mask mandates, it's odd Typically, we're hollering at school boards because we don't feel they're instructing kids properly or they're not running the schools well. A bunch of them finally make decisions that are based on their experience with kids and families, of which they have more of than any governor or attorney general or anyone else. And they're saying we need this to keep our teachers safe, to keep the kids safe so that we can instruct them in class. And everybody's hollering and screaming and saying we're going to invoke some sort of right to individual liberties and we want you to keep the kids at risk for what is now it's an endemic situation, which means it's going to be constant. It's going to be with us like our friends polio and chicken box and Ebola and malaria because we won't conform our behavior. We've got to let school districts do what they know best, and that is educating kids, but let them do it in as safe an environment as they think is necessary. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, David, the, the the one in Douglas County, I think not only that's where I live, so it's of interest to me locally, but it's also interesting where it feels the county commissioners would have their biggest beef with the school district. Because the school district is fine with the mask mandate, but it seems that the school district doesn't want to go there unless they have a health county saying that's where they should go. Is, are the commissioners aiming their fire in the right direction? I think they're aiming their fire to the extent they can use it. And I, to me, the... Uh, science of what should be done is, is, is much less clear um, because if you look at Hawaii and Texas, two states with very radically different policies, and Hawaii the, having the advantage of isolation to the extent it wants, uh, their spikes in uh, Delta cases have been close to identical. So we, we don't, we're not really sure exactly what does work. In, in Colorado, according to a Magellan Strategies poll, parents are about 50-50 split on the issue of, of forced masking. So how do you deal with something that, that is so divisive? And I think the answer is you have decisions made by people who are accountable. So the Douglas County School Board v voted for forced masking for even the youngest children. Well, that decision was made by the elected school board members, and parents who don't like that have an opportunity to vote against those school board members uh, at the next election. Likewise, the Douglas County commissioners, by their vote, saved 
independent schools from being forced into the tri-county mandate. And again, at independent schools, people have there's accountability too because if you don't like the school you just leave and you take your tuition dollars with you and so overall the solution we've gotten to in Douglas County has the decisions being made by people who are accountable which is great and the decisions shouldn't be made by the tri-county health which is not accountable. Eric Sonneman, columnist with Colorado Politics and Denver Gazette uh, and a longtime political analyst here at PBS 12. Eric, um, I imagine Governor Polis does not want to go back to using emergency powers and making this a state issue. If he had any inclination for that, he would have already done it. And so he's been waiting as long as he possibly can. Is that date where he needs to draw a line in the sand of at this point, I will go ahead and do it. Does he need to draw that line? I think your premise is right, Dominic. He doesn't want to go there. I think he's, you know, been there for out of the last 18 months, probably 15 out of those 18, 16 out of those 18. I think he's enjoying the respite. I think he's happy to let others uh, make these decisions. And yet events may force his hand. And I suspect that's very much on his mind. Do I anticipate that? In the immediate future, probably not. But let's see how the fall plays out and, and when fall becomes, becomes winter. Um, I'm tempted to yield my time, uh, as I guess they do on the floor of Congress or whatever, <laughs> to Penn, because uh, I think Penfield stated it uh, so well. But just because I'm tempted to do that, I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think the real point here is particularly you know, in Douglas County, where I think the county commissioners would label themselves as political conservatives, I thought conservatives really preach the doctrine of local control. And in this case, local control strikes me as let the school officials decide. Quite frankly, I'm not convinced or, or really understanding why boards of county commissioners are that involved to begin with, whether it's in Douglas County or in Adams County. David also put it uh, correctly. I don't totally agree with David on this one. But let the schools be accountable through the elected school boards and public systems in independent schools. There are also school boards there. There's a governing structure at any school body. And, as David also put out, if parents don't like it, they can walk with their feet. Um, so uh, the virus is in charge here, and the virus really doesn't give a damn, excuse my language, about any of these politics. The virus will take its course. We need to learn with, to live with this over some longer term. And with that, I think the person who comes after me actually is living this experience now with a couple young kids, so I will yield the floor to her. Well, that's a a wonderful segue to a person who's making her premiere here at Colorado Inside Out, Kristen Strom, president and CEO of the Common Sense Institute. Kristen, it's great to have you here. Uh, A lot of different arguments of local control here, and with growing numbers, uh, pressure at the very least on state government to maybe get involved and break some of these ties. From all the different news we saw this week, uh, what stood out to you? Well, to me, it seems like there's a group out there of strangely rabid people for whom setting mandates and controlling people's lives feels like a fetish. And this keeps on continuing. The facts are the facts, though, is that Colorado has been basically flat with deaths from COVID since April. We've been flat. And at the highest peak during the pandemic, children ages two to five were never forced to wear masks. So you have to ask yourself, why now? Why is this policy happening? I know a lot of moms, I am a mom of five-year-olds, that are angry about this because we know that there are a lot of cognitive and social and emotional development that happens between the ages of two and five where children need to see mouths to learn how to talk 
bilingual students need it to learn English. Um, they need it to learn emotional skills. And um, science is important here, too. Children are not likely to die from COVID. They have a 99.99 survival rate. The whole mask conversation to me was different before we had a vaccine that was readily and widely available. Now that we do, that teachers are vaccinated, adults are vaccinated, children are going to survive. I don't understand why we are now back to masking children. Um, I was actually at a concert this week. A lot of concert venues are open. People are out and about. No mandates, no masks, 15,000 people touching each other. Yet we're going to do this to our students. So to me, the logic, it does, it's not there. It doesn't make sense. Children are actually 14 times more likely to drown. They're 10 more likely times likely to die from cancer. They're 41 times more likely to be struck by lightning than die from COVID. This has got to stop at some point. Let's get to our next topic. Initiative 27, a ballot issue that would reduce Colorado's residential and commercial property tax rates, will appear on this November's ballot. After the Secretary of State's office found that supporters submitted enough valid signatures. Seeing this initiative coming, Colorado lawmakers passed Senate Bill 293 later, this, uh, later in the year's session adding new subclasses to residential and commercial property taxes. Uh, David, admittedly, uh, as we teach you before the show started, you're the only one here that does their homework. I think Kristen, because she's new, also did too. I want to give her credit, but usually only do the homework here. I don't know exactly how um, how much of a uh, workaround 293 is, but how much of Initiative 27, which seems like it could be pretty popular. When you ask a voter, would you like your property taxes cut? I don't think that's going to be a hard campaign to run, but did some of it gets stunted from what lawmakers did in the session. We will have to see, and it will be uh, uh, certainly some keep some lawyers busy uh, as that gets figured out. So th this is an initiative to amend Colorado statutes. It's, it's not a constitutional amendment, and so it needs a, a majority pa to pass, not the 55% you'd need for, for an amendment. And the proponents are Susan Tahiri and Michael Fields. Uh, Tahiri is a former official the, the Secretary of State's office, leading Republican lawyer in a serious way, not one of those people who says that uh, the election was stolen. Uh, Michael Fields is the executive director of Colorado Rising Action, and he's also been a panelist on this show. The opponents, the leaders, are Carol Hedges from the Colorado Fiscal Institute and Scott Wasserman of the Bell Policy Center, also uh, uh, a panelist on this show. I work at the Independence Institute, which is definitely going to be supporting this initiative. And the bottom line is property taxes have been ri rising a lot. This would cut property taxes by about a tenth, which is not even enough to make up for all the increases in taxes we've seen in recent years and the increases that are going to be coming in the future, but it mitigates it a little bit. The Colorado Constitution also allows but doesn't require the legislature to give a property tax break for the uh, first $200,000 of, of home owned by uh, elderly people or by disabled veterans. And this would take less than one one-thousandth of the Colorado state budget to uh, provide a guaranteed funding stream. Uh, so that can happen at least to some degree. Uh, Eric, we know tax cuts are popular, uh, but now is the battlefield going to be outsmarting the potential tax cut that could end up on a ballot? Well, I think that's part of the game. I mean, there's this yin and yang push and pull that has developed over recent years between the legislature, Democratic-dominated legislature, obviously with the cooperation of a Democratic governor, and 
what the conservative movement in this state has gravitated towards, led in many ways by Michael Fields, has been the ballot box and, and, and ballot issues specifically being shut out of almost all state offices. That has become conservative territory. And we saw that in the 2020 election with a number of ballot issues on fees and enterprises, on, on the income tax reduction, et cetera. Uh, I think this one will probably be as attractive as the ones that we saw in 2020. You could argue it would be more attractive. I mean, it, it's almost inarguable at this point that the state is rather swimming in money between the economic rebound that obviously has not in fact, uh, impacted all sectors, but that has um, filled up tax coffers quite nicely, and all of the federal stimulus money that is flowing through this state at this point in time. So I think it's going to be a, a, a tough case to make that you can't have a rather modest, we can argue how modest, but a rather modest reduction in, in sales tax. The legislative action that you referenced in your question, Dominic, at the end of the session was clearly designed to stunt the impact of this ballot measure by adding all kinds of new classes of property and only allowing this ballot measure to now impact those two classes of property. Chris, and I think uh, some folks would look at this last year, th this year's legislative session and realize that a lot of things happen via fees. And you you're going to ask for something there or just actually implement something there that wasn't voted upon. Uh, there's going to be some sort of response. Uh, it sounds like this is going to be an interesting November for folks fo following tax policy. What do you think? And I'm glad that you brought up fees because the voters voted on Proposition 117 passing it resoundingly, saying that they wanted approval of new fee enterprises moving forward. Look back at this past legislative session. What did the legislature do? They enacted six new fee enterprises all underneath the threshold, which, again, is that really looking at what the will of the people wanted? The will of the people was to vote on these fees, and they circumvented that process. We've seen fee growth since 1994 grow from $742 million annually to now over $18 billion paid by Coloradans annually. And when you tie this into Senate Bill 293 and what we have coming up on the ballot this year, it's extremely cynical and arrogant that the legislature would have circumvented the will of the people and this ballot process by changing the definitions. It's like a voter showing up to vote on the fact and the definition that the sky is blue. And then the legislature is saying, oh, no, actually it's green. Removing those two classes of the property taxes, I think, is misleading to voters, and it shouldn't have been done. Penn, you're a former state lawmaker, and actually we can probably trace the workarounds all the way back to 1992 when folks were trying to figure out, okay, now how do we fund government now that we have to go to the voters every time we want to raise taxes? Um, I don't think this process is going to end anytime soon. What do you think about its latest iteration? You know, the latest iteration is, as you just pointed out, it, it's, it's, it's a continuation of a theme. We need to take a breath and, and take a look at how we got here. Prior to 1992 and the passage of Tabor, the Colorado General Assembly typically did some very responsible things. When there were shortfalls in revenues and essential government services were needed, they raised taxes. When we were flush with money and we still needed these same services, they lowered taxes. Tabor changed the game in 1992 in that it eliminated some of the flexibility that the legislature had. One other interesting point, and people get real partisan on this topic, remember when Tabor was passed, the General Assembly that writes the budget 
was controlled by Republicans, not by Democrats. So that's one thing to keep in mind. We've got in, in our society and in Colorado this fundamental problem. Everybody wants stuff and they want it for free. No one says reduce my property taxes, but it's okay if you let my roads fall apart, if you let the bridges collapse, if tuition goes sky high because we don't want to fund higher ed, and oh, by the way, if schools kind of deteriorate because we don't put as much money there, that's okay, and if we don't regulate unsafe business practices, I'm good with it. No one says that. Everybody says reduce my taxes, but where the disagreement is, the people who vote that way don't take responsibility for saying, let's agree on what we're going to eliminate. That's the fundamental problem. There's a constituency for almost every line item in the budget. No one can agree on what to eliminate. Um, it's left to the legislature to do that hard work when other people are running around with petitions saying, give us back 50 bucks in our property taxes. The Denver City Council will consider a proposal to build a $19 million affordable housing apartment building at 8315 East Colfax. The 82 apartments will be reserved for tenants making less than 70% of the area's median income, or about $51,000 a year. Uh, Eric, we've been talking about a variety of housing problems, from homeless to affordable housing. This feels like a project that answers that, although at $51,000 a year, that's quite a median income. This is not exactly getting homeless people off the street, but it, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, do you think this will become a successful model for future projects? To be determined, Dominic. Uh, I think, as you indicated, this is not really an answer or even designed as an answer to the homelessness issue. This is much more broadly about affordable housing, which this city desperately needs. There's no debate about that. The question is how do you best find and provide that affordable housing? There's a deficit of supply. The, the demand is out there. There's an incredible deficit of supply. This is a project uh, consolidated in one location, I question the location a little bit on Colfax Avenue, but that's fine, and there are probably not a lot of neighbors around that will squawk about it as much as if you put it uh, in some other neighborhoods. Uh, I don't think this is going to be the stereotypical housing project, shall we say, that we got to know in Chicago and plenty other cities that, that were uh, mostly failed projects. Um, but yet it's going to be a consolidation where I think a wiser policy, either instead of this or in addition to this would be to incentivize developers to do two units here and three units there and five units there as part of bigger projects. Your, uh, 82 units is great, but 82 units is a drop in the ocean uh, in terms of what Denver's need is. Let's see how this plays out, but it's not a total answer. Chris, in the Common Sense Institute, has done a lot of work in this area. This is, uh, you know, stranger to this. Uh, what was your reaction to the announcement of this project this week? I think that 70% AMI plays a vital role in the affordable housing spectrum. Um, these are teachers, our civil servants, firefighters, police officers, who should be able to afford to live where they work. So it definitely is a step in the right direction. As Eric just mentioned, there is a huge crisis and shortage. We're 175,000 units short to meet population demands in Colorado. And what that requires is building 54,000 new units every year until the year 2026, 
We also need a lot of skilled laborers. So, you know, that's part of the conversation, too, is we need more skilled labor force. Uh, you mentioned that Common Sense Institute has done a lot of work on this. Our two fellows, Peter Lafari and Evelyn Lim, wrote an excellent blueprint with a lot of proactive solutions moving forward. This is one component. We also need to address the anti-growth sentiment that does exist in a lot of Colorado communities. How can we, you know, start to work to tear that down? We also need to go back and look at all of the regulations that are costing a ton to build these new units. We need to deregulate, and then we need to expand careers in construction as well. Penn, it seems like a good idea on, you know, at first blush. I'm no expert at it. When I look at it, it seems in a positive direction. But $19 million is also not chump change. That, that's a lot of money. To say we're going to do many more like this would take a lot of, re, a lot of uh, financing. Um, can the city afford to do more like this? No, they, they can't. Um, and, and I think Eric made the point, you know, I understand why the city did this, but but let's let, let's acknowledge that while it's a nice step, it's simply window dressing because they've been missing the point for the last decade. What they should have been doing and what they have the authority to do is work with developers to disperse affordable, attainable workforce housing around the city as different developments get built. Frankly, they didn't have the political courage to do that. And that's why we have the deficit that Kristen pointed out, that you've got to do a massive amount of building in order to get caught up. Second, this is bad public policy. The federal government years ago, after years of experimenting, stopped building large complexes with large numbers of people living on the margins because it creates a whole host of other social problems that come with those sorts of developments. This is exactly going in the wrong direction, and even the Denver Housing Authority doesn't do this sort of thing anymore with many of their dispersed housing programs where you integrate people within neighborhoods. Third, and Christian's right, you know, Teachers, firefighters, and others, they need housing options. But if you're trying to deal with the, the plight of the unhoused, most of them don't make $51,000 a year. You're not touching that issue. And I would submit that is probably the largest um, public policy and health issue we have in this city right now is the plight of the unhoused. David, wrap it up for us. Well, I, I remember uh, the famous chef, which was uh, the what used to be there before uh, the, this this project back in the olden days in, in uh, northeast Denver, that was a place where you could get a waffle with bacon for, for 75 cents. And then Famous Chef was replaced by another famous venue, PT's All Nude 2. And the 2 was with a Roman numeral, which just tells you how fancy that, that establishment <laughs> was. So I would just say, you know, as we think about honoring our city's history, the housing project should be named after that. Uh, so I would suggest it be called the all-nude famous chef housing project. <laughs> Well, you heard that creative name proposition here first on Colorado Inside Out. Always willing to help out city yeah. officials with new ideas. So uh, it is now time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. I imagine a few viewers probably just had it, but uh, that's okay. Uh, and usually Patty starts us off, but you have the esteemed honor of starting us off. Um, you know, we expect our schools to teach, to model appropriate behavior for kids, to instruct them as they move further in life, and I'm struggling to understand what's going on at Valor Christian. Um, you now have students on the sidewalk protesting the fact that the administration has fired two teachers, ostensibly because they're gay. 
No one said there was a performance issue. No one says there was a behavioral issue. It is who they are. Um, and that's problematic. Shame on Valor Christian. David. Well, as Dominic, as you know, this show has won uh, numerous Emmy Awards. One of our fellow Emmy winners, Andrew Cuomo, who won the 2020 International Emmy Founders Award for his masterful use of television to inform and call people about the pandemic, was stripped of his award for the unrelated fact that he's a sexual predator. But the fact is, his Emmy Award-winning television performances took place while he was killing thousands of New Yorkers by forcing infected people into nursing homes, and then he brazenly lied about it and covered it up. So in real life, he was the complete opposite of the character he was playing on television, and that makes him one of the great television actors of our generation. He earned his Emmy. That there is absolutely no connection to Colorado Inside Out to Andrew Cuomo. I just want to make that official. I appreciate what David's saying, but there is no connection. We have a Heartland Emmy. Thank you very much. That is only available in this region, not in our friends in New York. Eric, after that disclaimer. I don't know what David has in his coffee mug, but uh, how do I get some of that? Uh, I think you have to mention President Biden this week in this category. And the mess that the hash that is uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal, we can have a substantive argument about whether to withdraw or not. And I think I probably come down on the side of our time there is done and was probably done long ago. But you can also leave powerfully and competently. And uh, there's one word that I've really never heard or even considered myself to use with Joe Biden, which is callous. But there has been a callousness this week in terms of how he has come across vis-a-vis those Afghan allies that I'm afraid are going to get left behind. Kristen. This Afghanistan mess, and I'm going to leave it right there, it's been awful to watch unfold. And as an American, it hasn't been our finest hour. You wonder how it can get worse. Good point. Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Penn. Yeah, I think it's just wonderful that a bunch of area chefs have volunteered to cook meals for DPS students in a variety of different schools. Very cool to see. David. The many outstanding athletes currently competing at the Tokyo Paralympic Games. Here, here. Eric. Janice Sinden, but more broadly, uh, the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, which announced this week a reopening policy to get shows back, to get symphonies back, to get everything back at the DCPA. It's going to require vaccines and demonstration of uh, vaccine status. It's going to require masking, but at least it gets the arts back uh, in performance. Kristen. I'd like to give a shout out to the Academy for Lifelong Learning, where my fellows on my team and I will be teaching a five-week course coming up. Uh, all long uh, friends of this program, I think uh, our viewers may remember we did a special Colorado Insider on the road with the uh, uh, Life, uh, the Academy for Lifelong Learning. Uh, it's great to see they have a new uh, fall lineup coming out, that you're going to be part of that. And uh, it's always been a good part. Hopefully, with it back in person again, we'll be able to do another uh, CIO on the road uh, with all of our friends at the Academy. Uh, and I just want to do it, just a, a quick shout-out again as we end our August Pledge Drive. A whole lot of folks have joined uh, PBS 12. It's not too late if you have not, we have it this weekend, so if you have not, please uh, consider doing that. And for everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.